This episode of Oppo is brought to you in part by FreshBooks, the outrageously easy-to-use cloud accounting software. FreshBooks gives you more time by taking care of all the agonizingly boring accounting details that you keep putting off. How much time? Well, on average, users save about 192 hours per year. FreshBooks is now offering a 30-day free trial for listeners of Oppo. Just go to freshbooks.com slash Oppo and enter OPPO in the how did you hear about us section. You know what? It's going to be a great improvement to your business and your life, and you'd be doing us a big. This episode of Oppo is also brought to you by Endy, the 100% Canadian-made mattress. What does it mean to sleep on a Canadian mattress? It means going to bed knowing the mattress you sleep on was ethically made, locally sourced, and affordable. No gimmicks, games, or hidden fees, just one perfectly designed mattress. For $50 off any Endy mattress, go to endy.ca and enter the promo code Oppo. From Canada land, this is Oppo. <laughs> On this week's show, we check in with how the SNC Lavalin snafu is doing, and I think it's pretty clear, Jen, that whatever I said last episode turned out to be pretty much right. Oh yeah, your intuition on SNC has been entirely spot on. I look forward to listening to you put more predictions on the record while I file my nails and sigh. <laughs> It's time we talked about everybody's favorite consumer product, oil. All that and basically nothing else after the jump. So if you've decided to become like a classic millennial gig economy freelancer like I am, you would know that one of the hardest things to do is actually grow your business. It always seems like the day-to-day tasks of having your own business take up way too much time and the work that you really want to be doing gets put on the back burner. Accounting tasks are a big time killer. They're not difficult, but sorting through receipts and massive spreadsheets takes huge amounts of time away from your growing business. That's where FreshBooks comes in. On average, FreshBooks accounting software saves users about 192 hours a year because it makes taking care of your books so much easier. That's 192 hours you could be spending on networking, on sales calls, on training, or on anything else you haven't had time for. The beauty of FreshBooks is that there's no learning curve. You just jump right in, start organizing your books, and bam, you're ready to go. And if that's not incentive enough, we're offering a free 30-day trial of FreshBooks for all of our listeners. Go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter OPPO in the how did you hear about us section. So, Jen, since we last talked, Justin Trudeau has lost both a veterans affairs minister and a puppet master. Yeah, I'm sorry, Justin. I thought you said the scandal was a big nothing burger. How's uh, how's Jerry doing, by the way? He's holding up all right? Uh, probably running the re-election campaign, so I think he's going to be doing just fine. And to all of our listeners, in case you need some catching up, the political tire fire around a proposed deferred prosecution agreement got even weirder in the last two weeks, as the cable news shows and legal experts on Twitter continue to debate whether or not the pressure put on Jody Wilson-Raybould to cut a deal with SNC-Lavalin in a criminal trial about their allegedly illegal Libyan business dealings. Both Wilson-Raybould and Trudeau conciliary Jerry Butts resigned from their jobs. For lots of folks, these resignations were the proof in the pudding that there was another big story around the corner that Bob Fife and Steve Chase of the Global Mail were going to totally take down this government. It's just a couple of days away that the House of Cards would be coming down any minute. And I'm sure that's where you're at, Jen. But here's the thing. The more we learned about this whole thing over the last fortnight, the more I'm convinced that there's more smoke than actual fire here. Justin, I don't even want to debate with you because the more you talk about this, the more you make an ass of yourself. I just want to clip all of these comments for posterity so that I can continue to laugh at you later. Sure, Jen. Laugh all you want. Oh, I'm laughing. (laughs) So we'll probably not hear from the former justice minister until later this week. But the big news from last Thursday came from Michael Wernick, the clerk of the Privy Council. He basically recounted the meeting 
meetings where the supposed pressure was put on the ex-justice minister. Yeah, that's basically the whole testimony where Wernick completely confirmed the Globe's original February 7th story. Well, confirmed parts of it and then said other parts were inaccurate or somewhat defamatory. But yeah, sure, Jen, let's go with that. I'm waiting for him to sue. Believe me, let's hold. I'm holding my breath. Sue. Of course he's not because he's full of shit. Let's listen to Wernick describe the January meeting with the then minister. And this is basically the meeting that we think is the crux of the scandal. So I checked in with the Minister of Justice on uh, on the issue and where it was likely to go and whether deferred prosecution agreement was still an option. I conveyed to her uh, that a lot of her colleagues and the Prime Minister were quite anxious about what they were hearing and reading in the business press about the future of the company, the options that were uh, being openly discussed in the business press about the company moving or closing. So I can tell you with complete assurance that my view of those conversations is that they were within the boundaries of what's lawful and appropriate. I was informing the minister of context. She may have another view of the conversation, um, but that's something that the ethics commissioner could sort out. All right, Jen, listen, you heard him. Can you admit the story is overblown now? Um, No, because as far as I can see, the Globe's original reporting had it right. Jody Wilson-Rebold was pressured by him, by members of the prime minister's office, and by the prime minister himself to drop criminal proceedings against SNC weeks after the public prosecutor had already made the decision, and just a few weeks before Jody Wilson-Rebold was demoted. Very conveniently, for completely unrelated reasons, I'm sure, because your sources said so. So in the last two weeks, what we have had is a government that has gone from full fake news denialism to insistence that she was not quote-unquote directed, to not pressured, to now claiming that she was not inappropriately pressured. It's a giant farce of moving goalposts. Wernick's own testimony describes pressure. The Prime Minister's office is not allowed to pressure the Attorney General in matters like this. We're done now. Good night. Well, I mean, very few things you just said are correct. Okay, but, let's go. But well, sure, I don't want to be saying I mean, things that aren't correct, so please let's tell me what's not correct. I mean, first off, the, the Prime Minister never demanded that uh, the minister drop criminal proceedings against SNC-Lavalin. The request was for a deferred prosecution agreement, essentially a plea deal where SNC admits wrongdoing and pays and a fine. And doesn't have to proceed with criminal prosecutions. Let's go on with the next inaccuracy now. <laughs> The government's line largely haven't changed on this. They said she wasn't directed. That's true. And then when the actual story was somewhat clarified to say the question was around pressure, inappropriate pressure, they said, no, we didn't do either of those things either. And the clerk of the Privy Council, who is a civil servant, not a politician, confirmed that that is exactly what happened in those meetings, that there was no inappropriate pressure. But he made clear to the justice minister that cabinet wanted an agreement. The minister, best we can tell, and we'll hear more from her this week, said the public prosecution service has decided not to do that, and I'm not going to tell them to do otherwise. And then it ended. What you've just described is several meetings with people high up within the Prime Minister's office and the PCO pressuring Jody Wilson-Raybould. I mean, what you're describing is pressure. It's inappropriate pressure. I mean, I, I mean we can go back to this conversation. In the where same I said, way that any conversation about any public policy matter is pressure where there's no, a difference No, but of it's not because the decision was already made and they continued to pressure. I mean, like, I don't know how to say this in another way. I don't have to say so. Like, when we talked about this last week, I totally agreed with you that there would be nothing inappropriate about these people talking to Jody Wilson or Bold and saying, look, here's a fulsome picture of the situation with SNC and blah, 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 blah. But once the decision had been made for them to come back to her again and again and again and again, reminding her of just how important this economic situation would be, blah, 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 over and over and over again, and then very conveniently uh, demote her. Um, Again, for totally unrelated reasons, I'm totally sure. The bar for what constitutes pressure here isn't high. It's actually really low because it has to be. And what Wernick himself described constitutes inappropriate pressure. He's just pretending that it's not. Does it? I mean, for it to be inappropriate pressure, there would have to be an element of of threat there. And 
There is no threat there. You know, nobody they're, they're, in politics is going to be stupid enough to say directly to Jody's to her face, do this or we're going to demote you. That's not how this works. That's not how pressure works. That's not how manipulation works. That doesn't mean that it wasn't inappropriate okay. pressure. So if you're setting the bar at like a direct threat, then you're setting the bar actually enormously no, no, too high. No, not a direct threat. I mean, but I don't even really want to debate about whether it's appropriate pressure or inappropriate pressure because I think the second we fall down that rabbit hole, we've we've accepted the government's moving of the goalposts on this. Movie. We've accepted their framing. I don't accept the framing. The bar, the bar for what constitutes pressure is low, and what Wernick describes, to my mind, and I think to most common sense minds, meets it. But anyway, like I don't really actually really want to debate that because uh, you disagree and it's fine okay. and we're not going to turn each other's minds on on that issue. And I'm actually more interested in where this goes from here. Yeah, I I mean, fine. You know, we're going to agree to disagree, I suppose, which we do in most things. <laughs> but <laughs> two weeks ago, I said, I don't think we're going to be talking about this in a couple of months. And I think everything I've learned over the last two weeks has basically confirmed my opinion that this scandal will live and die in the month of February, maybe a little bit into March, because we're expecting Jody Wilson-Raybould to come up in this coming week. And based on the preview we got from Michael Wernick, who, by the way, is a longtime friend of the foreign minister, basically suggests that she's going to say in that meeting, I thought there was a little bit too much pressure and I, you know, said no. And that was that, you know, again, Michael Wernick confirmed that there was no talk about replacing Jody Wilson-Raybould as justice minister until after Scott Bryson resigned. So, Scott uh, Bryson's but, fault. But, uh, you oh, know, man. I'm curious, what, what do you think she's going to say, Jen? Like, wh- what would she say that will really So confirm? that's where I kind of agree with you on this point. A lot of this now hinges on what Jody Wilson-Raybould says or doesn't say to the Justice Committee. I'm not ruling out the possibility that this eventually gets investigated by an inquiry or by the Senate or by the RCMP. And who knows? Well, there is the Ethics Commissioner investigating it right now. There's going to be the Ethics Commissioner. My concern about the Ethics Commissioner is that what the Ethics Commissioner is mandated to look into is just the Conflict of Interest Act. And the Conflict of Interest Act dictates politicians getting some kind of personal thing out of a decision inappropriately out of a decision that they've made in office. I don't think anyone's alleging in this scandal that Trudeau personally benefits from SNC continuing or Jerry Butts would personally benefit. So I don't, I think that the conflict of interest act is actually too narrow to look into a scandal like this because we're not actually alleging personal misconduct by any of these people. That may be true, but I, but I will say the eventual report from the ethics commissioner might do that job anyway. Yeah, you totally. know, the ethics yeah. commissioner has a full authority to go investigate this. He'll be able to come out yeah. and say, you know, listen, here is what transpired. It doesn't breach the act. It but doesn't breach the act this, but exactly. And I think that does basically the same job as a public inquiry. But Maybe, maybe not. Because I think what, what tends to happen, I mean, I've seen this happen with other ethics uh, commissioners inquiries, is that what you wind up getting is politicians acting and behaving in ways that are clearly unethical by any common sense standard. But because they don't technically breach reach the narrow definition right. of the Ethics Commissioner Act, the Ethics Commissioner gets them off. And then, of course, and, and, then, yeah, and then it gets and yeah. then it gets spun as, as an acquittal. That's right. So like, I don't, it's not that I don't have faith in the Ethics Commissioner per se or the office per se. It's that I think that the mandate is too narrow to actually really examine no, something that, like that's this. that's right. I agree with that. So yeah. So here's what I would say about the, it really does depend on what Jody Wilson-Ripple says. Because you're right. I mean, right now, that's what this whole thing hinges on. And if she goes into that committee and she sort of isn't entirely forthright and hides behind client solicitor privilege, which she may have to do, then the scandal doesn't go away. On the other hand, if she goes into that committee and says something very similar to what you've just said, like, yeah, you know, it was a little bit much, but, you know, it, it was fine and, and I could handle it, then you're right. Then the scandal kind of does die on the vine. You know, at this point, I don't really put a lot of faith in your ability to predict anything. 
<laughs> okay, I mean, that, that's entirely fair. I mean, if I'm right, I'm going to feel really smug about it, but that's an entirely fair uh, representation of how bad I am at predicting pretty much everything. And also, I think one of the, the big outstanding questions of this whole mess is that why didn't Jody Wilson resign if she felt pressured? And I, you know what? I think that's a totally fair question to ask. And it's one of the real holes in this whole scandal, because if she felt pressure at the time, her obligation absolutely was to step down and then cause a big, you know, shitstorm on the way out. Or, as Wernick pointed out, to go to the ethics commissioner or to really call the PMO or the prime minister himself or really do anything. By all accounts, she did nothing. It's not realistic to expect her to go to the people pressuring her to complain about the fact that she was being pressured. That's not realistic. But she did have an obligation to resign. The only thing I would say to that is if Jody Wilson-Raybould did not act perfectly as expected of her in that kind of a scenario, that doesn't prove that pressure didn't take place. That, that's fair. That's totally fair. You know what fair. I mean? Like, she, it's very possible that she was pressured, that she was pressured inappropriately, that she decided not to step down because uh, for entirely self-interested reasons. Like, I don't want to cause a shitstorm. I don't want to damage liberals. I don't want to damage my own prospects in cabinet. Like, there are a lot of reasons why she would have a personal interest in keeping mum about this, which wouldn't be appropriate. Like that wouldn't be right for her to not step down. But there are a lot of reasons why it would be completely understandable why she would choose not to. And it would be totally reasonable to say, hey, Jody Westerwood absolutely should have stepped down. She didn't. That wasn't appropriate of her, but she was still inappropriately pressured. Like, you know what I mean? Like that, like all of these, all of these. It's a lot of ifs. Yeah, totally. It's a lot of ifs. But all of those things are, they're not mutually incompatible. Just because she didn't step down doesn't prove that there was no pressure. Totally fine. Putting aside almost the entire scandal itself, whether or not it was appropriate, inappropriate, whether or not we've overblown this or not, there's been two kind of really interesting ramifications from this whole scandal. One, of course, is that the prime minister lost his right hand man in this whole thing, seemingly more out of, you know, the fallout from the scandal than about anything he did in particular. He, you know, left the office denying in a statement basically everything that was being kind of alleged or suggested, which could be bad. I mean, Jerry Butts was basically the the vision for the entire PMO. He was the, you know, the big thinker, which, you know, there's pros and cons to. I think a lot of the things that have sort of hobbled this government for being a little bit too airy-fairy, head in the clouds, comes from Jerry. So, you know, you might actually see the last sort of gasp of the Trudeau government be a lot more down to earth and realistic than it has been for, you know, its entire time in government. That's interesting, though, honestly, I'm almost positive Jerry Butts will end up on the re-election campaign and we have not seen the last of him. But the other big thing, I actually think this is the most interesting kind of result of all this, is the conversation about whether or not uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould was wearing two hats Mm -hmm. when she was quote-unquote, pressured or unduly pressured or whatever on SNC-Lavalin. You know, for a long time, you know, some legal experts have been basically saying it is inappropriate that the federal attorney totally. general is the same person as the federal justice minister. And and maybe that starts a conversation about the fact that we need to actually split those roles, 100%. I think that would be yeah. great because Wernick's testimony basically said, I believe that Jody Wilson-Raybould was acting as justice minister when we talked to her about the SNC-Lavalin thing, which if that's the case, there's no scandal here and that isn't an appropriate thing. The trouble is because she did both jobs, it's hard to know what hat she was wearing because the hats are invisible and you can't see invisible hats. I think that this scandal is exactly why the hats need to be split. It's it's a perfect example of the problem with that system. Is losing Butts a big blow? I mean, I sort of said this uh, in a Globe column that I thought Butts deciding to resign when he did was bad tactics. I think it was really stupid. I think so too. I think all it did is it added fuel to the fire and made people even more convinced that there was more of a scandal here. Like there's no reason why he would have resigned if there wasn't a scandal. Him sending out a big, extensive resignation letter proclaiming his innocence doesn't negate that in any way. Yeah. Also, if you're going to, th- I mean, again, I don't want to overuse metaphors. If you're going to throw yourself under the bus, you have to throw yourself under the bus. Like you have to be like, this yeah. was my fault. I yeah. made a mistake. And as a result, I don't want to take down 
the prime minister as a result of my mistake. He actually could have done quite a lot to squelch a lot of this scandal if he had actually chosen to just fess up, take responsibility and move on. But he didn't. It's sort of like he stepped up to the stake and like lit the match himself. And he's like, but I'm not but a I'm witch. But I'm not a witch. I, I swear, swear to God. God. <laughs> it's just, just the hat. The hat came with the coat. I swear to God. Yeah, like that. Like that's that's exactly what it is. And then the other problem that I have with, with the fact that he resigned when he did is that it was just bad timing. Like, wait till Wilson Ribold speaks. Wait until yeah. like the scandal unfolds. Wait until you've actually been accused of something by someone on the record before you decide to take the dive. Like it's it yeah. just it's too early. Like his place in the prime minister's office hadn't become untenable at that point. So like it was bad timing, it was bad strategy, and it was bad communications. And I'm kind of wondering if um that's kind of a sign that it was time for him to go anyway. <laughs> Right. I actually do kind of think that bad strategy, bad timing, and bad communication sums up this government relatively well. Yes, and I'm actually not entirely sure that a Justin Trudeau government without Jerry Butts, a more grounded, realistic Justin Trudeau government, is a bad prospect for Canada. So, Cool. Cool. <laughs> Welcome to the ASMR corner of Oppo. I'm your host, Justin Ling. You, like me, probably desperately want a good sleep because you probably haven't had one in a number of years if you were as panicked about the current state of affairs of the world and the country as I am. That's why Oppo is offering you a special ND deal. ND is transparent about its sourcing, materials, manufacturing, and its design. All materials and manufacturing used to make the ND mattress are sourced within Canada. By keeping manufacturing local, ND can avoid duties, currency exchanges, and international shipping. Now imagine yourself on one of those shipping containers. It's loud. You're rocking back and forth. You don't want that. What's more, Andy's quality is second to none, and its pricing is even better. With a smaller price tag than its competitors, their mattresses cost between $675 and $950. That means even the largest mattress, a California King, costs less than 1000 bucks. Imagine yourself on the California coastline. The wind whipping in your hair. A seagull somewhere is choking on a fry. <laughs> you simply can't find that kind of quality to price ratio anywhere else. For $50 off any ND mattress, go to ND.ca and enter the promo code OPPO. That's ND.ca, promo code OPPO. So, Justin, I think we've been wanting to do an oil episode for a while now. And personally, being in Alberta, I'm super excited for this. We're going to go full wonk. And this is also a really lucky opportunity for you because I know you really wanted to enjoy continuing to smash your face into the computer on the SNC file this week. But oil has actually been in the news quite a lot of late. Yeah, there's just been a great big convoy that drove all the way from Alberta to Ottawa to clog up traffic for the better part of an afternoon. And I don't know, have a tiny rally on Parliament Hill. That was really impressive. Yeah, apparently Faith Goldie show up. You know, you made it when. <laughs> uh, and the Alberta is government is buying up a bunch of rail cars to circumvent beleaguered pipelines and it's investing a about a billion dollars in oil upgraders. And the NDB has ruled that the Trans Mountain expansion can move forward, even though it will probably kill the fuck out of some killer whales. So let's get started. Firstly, I think the convoy to Ottawa was a little bit ridiculous, but I think it's worth talking about because I know it's something that really got people's attention and pissed a lot of people off. Yeah, I mean, this has been such a polarizing thing. I mean, for some people, the convoy is a, a Russian paid for AstroTurf campaign designed to give voice to some crazy white nationalist. And for everybody else, it's the legitimate outpouring of honest Albertan frustration at a Canadian government who seems to want to shoot them all in the face. The reality is probably somewhere in between. You know, I, I think it's interesting because over the four years of Trudeau's prime ministership, or roughly four years, you know, we've seen some frustration and anger from the right and from Alberta. I think this is supposed to be kind of the first, you know, big organized activist outpouring against the liberal government. 
And I think it was largely a failure. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So I mean, it's really interesting because I mean, I think you you framed the two perspectives on this convoy really, really well. And it was fascinating to me for did, did I? <laughs> was, yeah, I think you did actually. And it was fascinating for me to watch this from Alberta because whether or not you saw this as like a legitimate expression of protest against the Trudeau government's oil policies, or whether or not you saw this as like a convoy of white nationalism, depended almost entirely on where you were living at the time, right? So. I think to some extent, yeah, I think the convoy was a failure and it wasn't a failure at the same time. I do think it did successfully gain a lot of attention to the issues that these guys wanted to bring attention to, primarily, you know, C-69 and Bill C-48. But, 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 you know, whenever you have these types of grassroots, hodgepodgey type protest organizations, and I even use, I, I struggle to use the word organization here, protest movements that are like this. And I mean, we saw this with like Occupy and with the Tea Party and those sorts of things. They tend to either be hijacked or defined by their most extreme elements. And we absolutely saw that with this convoy. Like there were absolutely white nationalists in that convoy. I don't think that they comprised the majority of the convoy, but that was certainly yeah. some of the people who were in there. That's right. And like one of the cars even, one of the cars was decked out. There was just a car, it wasn't a truck. It was decked out in messaging, complaining that the Canadian government was uh, forcing Filipino Canadians into slave labor. So the message clarity wasn't quite there. No, the, the message clarity wasn't there. And like to some extent, that was a reflection of sort of the, the hodgepodgey nature of the whole thing and the amateur nature of the whole thing. The other thing that some, you know, if you are going to organize a protest like this, you have to be diligent about who you associate with, because especially if you're taking a message into hostile territory, people are going to use yeah. your most extreme, most crazy elements to discredit you. And it doesn't really matter whether or not you're protesting from the left, or protesting from the right. That's just something you have to be aware of. And the other thing, too, is that if your movement actually starts to gain traction and publicity, crazy people are going to hijack it for their own ends. And that's what we saw with, for example, you know, Faith Goldie showing up in Ottawa. Like, she doesn't have anything to do with oil and gas policy. She's got nothing to say on Bill C-69 or Bill C-48. You know, she's better known for videos about white genocide. What the hell was she doing there except use that convoy's uh, momentum to sort of promote and propel her own brand and her own particular brand of alt-right whatever. So, you know, it's on one hand, it's like... I think it's actually a shame because I think that the core intent originally of this convoy was actually was a genuine and legitimate expression of anger and frustration. But I think it got massively derailed. That's fair. And I think there's really three big points that they were you know, kind of yelling about. One being stop the carbon tax. We've talked about that a bunch yeah, on the show. Yeah. I think, you know, that is, I think, a genuine populist belief, one that I think is absurd. And I don't think it's actually striking at the issue. But, but fine, that's there. The second one appeared to be an anti-UN migration compact plank, which I think rightfully gave them the air of being complete nut bars. Uh, but the third thing, and I think this is you know maybe a little bit more of a fixed gripe, is these two pieces of legislation that you know I don't think people have actually are super familiar mm -hmm. with. Like I'm not even that familiar with them as I understand. Yeah, outside it. of Alberta, yeah, in Alberta, like yeah. literally everybody talks about C69 and C48 as being like the legislation that is designed to strangle and destroy the oil and gas industry here. Like that is the way people like it is. It is something people talk about. And the flip side is that both of those pieces of legislation would actually provide some clarity and structure uh... behind what is kind of but i mean school me on here this gen like c69 i think came out of a really interesting and bizarre set of political circumstances back in 2012 the national energy board which is the the organization that oversees the regulatory system that decides about things like pipelines and energy projects under the harper government he's like no no well we're not going to be letting you know this arm's length national energy board have the final say on these projects we're going to bring this decision making into cabinet and i think that you know in hindsight that was one of the biggest strategic errors of the harper government because they essentially politicized what should have been a non-political regulatory process and i think that the credibility of the neb has been um, severely undermined as a result of that decision 
So the end result, you know, several years down the tube is that you have the, the Trudeau government coming into power saying, we're going to restore the credibility of the NEB by essentially just blowing it up and remaking it. And we're going to create this whole new system. They do this under the guise of Bill C-69. And there's some elements of Bill C-69 that I think have been sort of misconstrued. There are some elements that are good, and there are some elements that I think are legitimately bad. In Alberta, Bill C-69 is referred to as the no more pipelines bill. I shit you not. The Trudeau government claims that, look, we've brought in more clarity to the process, and more importantly, we're setting firm guidelines on the regulatory process so that we don't have investors coming in and putting in billions of dollars into potential projects that ultimately wind up failing after 10, 12, 13, 14 years, right? So we're going to put in firm deadlines. That's actually a good thing that this bill is hoping to do. There's also things in the language of the bill, like, you know, they're bringing gender-based analysis into it. Gender-based analysis is sort of, um, you know, Trudeau himself didn't explain this very well, but it's perfectly valid to look at, for example, the gender impacts of bringing in a work camp into a place like rural Alberta. Like that's that would be an example of gender-based analysis. There's nothing wrong with that. Where I think that this bill is is starting to really make people nervous, though, is that essentially it keeps the decision-making process in the hands of the politicians, not in the hands of the regulators. And I think that that just sort of extends the problem that the Harper government started back in 2012. And there's also some real concerns that that some of the language in the bill is so iffy and vague that essentially all it's going to wind up doing is ensuring that any future project or pipeline just winds up stalled out in exactly the same sort of court dramas that we're seeing right now. So it doesn't actually fix a lot of the problems that a lot of the industry would like to see fixed. It seems to me that, that the prime minister wants to have his cake and eat it too. You know, he wants yeah, exactly. he wants a robust system that gives the veneer of environmental assessment and legitimate buy-in that is you know wholesome and holistic and all this, but realistically wants to ultimately rest the decision in cabinet where he can rubber stamp projects which runs you into the exact same problem that the Trans Mountain expansion had, which is that when someone brings a court challenge, the court is tasked with looking at the legislation as it reads yeah. and doesn't necessarily have the benefit of the full cabinet decision into, into how projects get approved or don't get approved. And not even just rubber stamp, but the opposite is that you can have, a, as we saw with Northern Gateway, you can have a project that is essentially approved, maybe with some conditions, right. but it's just so politically untenable that you have the, the cabinet, you know, nix it just by saying it's not worth the votes that we'll lose if we approve this, so, which is both of these those situations, both rubber stamping and disapproving. Neither of those are, are ideal. Nobody wants that. What you want is you want an arm's length third party regulator who will be able to assess, credibly assess the environmental impacts of a project and say, this is in the national interest or this isn't in the national interest and here's why. And you actually want to take politics right out of this process. You, you don't want them doing either of them. Once you get to that spot, once you really fully hand over, and I think this is the crux of why the prime minister didn't do this, when you hand over that power to a third party, there's a real good chance they're just going to say no a lot. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and this is the reality, and this is part of the reason why Harper rejigged this whole process. Well, he didn't really rejig it. He brought the power making into cabinet, but essentially, yes, that's, right. that's actually the opposite of the case. I mean, the vast majority of projects under the old NEB project got approved. Vast majority did. The reasons for that, like a lot of people use that fact to sort of discredit the NEB by saying, well, look, the NEB is an illegitimate rubber stamping process, but that's kind of fundamentally misunderstand the way the regulatory process works. The regulatory process doesn't measure its success by how many projects it rejects. The process is about setting out a set of clear guidelines and environmental standards and, you know, taking that to industry saying, here's the bar you need to meet. And then the, the industry then needs to say, we've met that bar. And then the NEB agrees that you've met the bar. So the idea of the NEB isn't necessarily to shut down every single project or approve every single project. It's about 
setting a standard and making sure the industry meets that standard. For sure. But but you also have to consider the fact that over the last decade, the formula has changed significantly with successive Supreme Court decisions recognizing oh, totally. the duty to consult First Nations. And, you know, under the old process, I think it was a lot easier to say, all right, you're not going to you know pour water into the river. Uh, you're not going to clear cut you know half of British Columbia and you're not going to shoot people who get in the way. Great project approved. That calculus has changed significantly now, where you actually have to have earnest, potentially buy-in, potentially consent, potentially a whole bunch of stuff. We don't still don't fully know yeah. from indigenous groups, you know, who are going to be impacted either directly or somewhat indirectly by these projects. Well, and that's where this everything this gets so much more complicated. So, I mean, l- let's not misconstrue the previous NEB process. It's not like it was a easy process to get a major pipeline sure, approved. Sure. Like it wasn't a, a simple or easy process. There's always been some duty to consult. But where you're absolutely correct is that subsequent court rulings has made the line about what consultation is and what constitutes duty to consult much more complicated and much more um, specific over the last couple of years. And that's what we're struggling to work out through a mixture of regulatory and judicial rulings. For sure. And to bring it, well, we bring it back to the convoy and to the kind of the current political discussion. What frustrates me is that there seems to be an air or, you know, a line of naivete that comes from, you know, the Conservative Party, from Maxime Bernier, from these protesters, because the reality is with or without this new legislation, it's not as though we can just ram through these pipeline projects or oil exploration projects or or fracking projects or what have you. The reality is the calculus has changed significantly. You can't just check a box and just approve every pipeline, you know, with a magic wand. And so, you know, to frame all of this as though Ottawa is shutting down pipelines, Ottawa is shutting down projects. I mean, it just doesn't bear out in reality. Well, uh, there are some legitimate criticisms with some of these bills. So like, sure. don't, 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 let's not kid ourselves. I mean, there's a reason why the Senate's, I mean, Paula Simons is, is one of the people, the uh, Alberta senator who used to work for the Edmonton Journal, is one of the senators who's been speaking up about C-69. And I think she's a super credible, super valuable voice to have on the table in that one. And she's the one who's saying, no, we actually sent that bill back because some of the language simply isn't clear enough, right? right? So like, there are legitimate issues with it. That said, yeah, could the government be doing more to create a system or a framework where we have a clearer understanding of what duty to consult entails? Yes, they probably could, but they almost certainly won't because the political calculus for that just doesn't make sense. So that kind of brings us to the conversation around the Trans Mountain expansion, which also came through this week. So what happened was a couple of months ago, the federal court came back and said, no, we're putting a halt to the Trans Mountain expansion because of basically two reasons. One, because the pipeline failed to consider sort of the marine impacts of increased tanker traffic. And two, because you, you know, you failed in certain elements of your consultations with First Nations people. So the federal government, which at this point was not expecting the federal court ruling to come back as it did, had bought the pipeline and was basically stuck with it. They said, okay, fine, we'll go back and redo the NEB review while taking in the this marine life consideration and at the same time redoing these consultations. The NEB came back and said, yep, there will absolutely be significant impacts to the coastal marine life um, around uh, where these tankers are going to be expected to come in. It will probably have a significant impact on the killer whale population there and in the unlikely event of a major oil spill. That will not be a minor issue. The effects would be significant. But they said, look, here are 16 other recommendations that we're going to put forward for you. One of them, for example has to do with uh, slowing down BC ferries and making them quieter. I mean, there's there's other types of balancing and mitigating impacts you can introduce in, in, if you want to approve this pipeline. But they said on the balance, you know, even though that there might there will be some significant environmental impact on the balance, it still makes more sense for us to prove this than not. It's in the national interest. Of course, environmentalists are going apeshit over this, understandably. But to be honest with you, 
I am in no way surprised that the NEB came back with this ruling. I think we could have all seen this right on the wall. They approved it once already, you know, just because they got sent back to the drawing board doesn't really mean they were going to, you know, do an about face. And it wasn't even sent back to the drawing board. It was literally like just... Right. It was one one aspect. It was like, redo your calculation of balance with this one aspect, which I mean, the original ruling kind of did talk about. So, I mean, it, it's, it doesn't surprise me that they came back to this ruling. What still is outstanding now is the redo of the consultations with First Nations people, which my suspicion is going to be stretched out to um, span over the next federal election. So here's my issue with all of this. You know, I'm generally in favor of new pipeline projects. I'm generally in favor of the Northern Gateway. If you heard me on the show before and you're an environmentalist, you probably already hate me. You know, I'm generally of the opinion that new oil projects make a lot of sense because if we can get this discount removed from Canadian crude, then, you know, we're going to be able to increase our oil revenues all over again. Now, means more royalties to the provinces, means more money in the federal coffers means potentially more money to put towards green energy projects, mean more money towards research and investment uh, in alternative sources of energy. And I think that's on the whole, a good thing as we transition to a low carbon economy. I think there's not much use in cutting off your nose to spite your face. So that's where I'm normally at. Here's my problem. Over the last, you know, year or so, we're starting to get a better picture of what, um, you know, the short medium term forecast for oil prices is going to be. And it doesn't look fucking good. I mean, you know, with the discount, Canada's sort of fucked. Even without the discount, we're not going to get back to $100 barrels of oil anytime soon. And that is the calculus on which rests a lot of future infrastructure investment and a lot of future um, you know, trading on, on oil. And I'm starting to wonder whether or not going in for these huge, costly capital projects um, makes sense, especially because a lot of these projects won't get online until 2022 at the earliest. I'm wondering if we're just kind of chaining ourselves to costly infrastructure projects that ultimately won't even recoup their investment or if they do, won't do it until midway through the century. And that's starting to concern me. I'm starting to wonder if we've passed the optimal point where these investments make sense if we're already too late. I mean, we're going to be looking at a point where oil demand is going to start steadily declining in the next 10 years. Does it make sense to have these these projects when you know maybe we should start thinking about how we can move this oil now as opposed to you know five years from now? The most recent- These uh, are really, yeah. really valid questions. Now, I would say as part of the National Energy Board's process, they do look at things like, okay, is this is in the national interest from an economic point of view? Are we spending useless dollars on infrastructure that is essentially going to get squandered? And the but tr- this is a cabinet decision, not an NEB decision. At the end of the day, this is long-term planning for the Canadian future. This is not a regulator's job, really. Yeah, except that, well, except that it is a regulator's job because we don't live in a centralized economy. Most of these sure. decisions and risks are ultimately borne out by private companies, right? With the exception of Trans Mountain, which was just purchased by the Liberal government. So there's a couple of interesting things to, to consider when we look at situations like that. I mean, if we look at, for example, the Energy East, sort of the decline of Energy East. A lot of reasons why Energy East was was cancelled. But one of the reasons that was cited at the time was that because um, with Keystone XL going through, and at that time, the Trans Mountain expansion going through, it simply didn't make economic sense anymore for Energy East, that, that we simply had the pipeline capacity we needed to meet the, the demand that we needed to meet. So those factors are actually part of the regulatory process. They're actually something that people do consider. Now, the question of whether or not it makes sense for us to be building any more pipelines, looking at the long-term sort of decline in oil demand, I think that's a totally valid question. And I think that it's actually a valid question that people need to be asking a lot more. Because to be honest with you, I don't think that, I mean, my timeline's probably a little different than yours. I think that there are going to be applications for oil and Alberta oil and plastics and and petroleum and all of that, at least for the next 50 years. 
even if we don't go back to a hundred dollar barrel of oil, you know, we, That's we totally we're, we're, we're not going back to 15 either. So, you know, I think it makes sense for Alberta, most Alberta oil sands to sort of continue operating above the $30 barrel oil mark. Please correct me if I'm wrong, Twitter, but you know, you know, we're at the point where we're making a decent profit on this right now. So it does make sense for us to do this. And, and ultimately what the pipelines that we're putting in the ground now do is they give us the opportunity to sell that oil on a world market, which means that we're not taking this huge discount because we're dependent solely on the Americans to basically sell this product. Okay, but but here's my big problem with that is that you know without America there, that all makes sense to me. You know, yeah. we, we especially you know five to ten years ago, we should have been clamoring more for uh, you know new opportunities in China and India. We should have been thinking about these equations you know in a more fulsome way a decade ago because there was a huge market for us from from Europe who was trying desperately to get away from uh, oil from the Caucasus, the Middle East, and Russia to, you know, East Asia, Japan. There's so many options for us there. The problem is right now, you know, we're already seeing an oversupply problem coming from OPEC. They've cut production a little bit, but not by nearly enough. What's more is that America is seeing a glut right now. It is seeing a huge... America is actually oil independent, essentially, right now, which is amazing. Yeah, and they're going to turn to being a, a global energy supplier, yeah. especially with, um, you know, the shale extraction of oil. They're doing it faster and cheaper than we can. Absolutely. I, I think it's getting to the point where we're losing our comparative advantage. Oh, absolutely. And maybe it's time to, to move on. And that was something that people uh, weren't expecting. So as I said, even with um, America being an oil producer and an oil supplier and all of this, it still doesn't make sense for us to shut down the oil sands. We're still producing a product that people wanted a profit. So like, you're right. It's absolutely changed the math. It's changed the calculus on a lot of this stuff. But it still doesn't make sense to be like, okay, let's you know shut down this huge aspect of our wealth and piss away all of the oil royalties because maybe we can't sell it for a hundred dollars a barrel anymore. We're still making money on this, so like that's the thing I would say. But yeah, absolutely, the global dynamics in the oil market are massively complicated, and they've shifted against Alberta's favor. There's no question about that. And I wouldn't say, you know, shut it down entirely, but I think transition is the word we need to start using. You know, Andrew Shear seems to want to double down, same with Jason Kenney, and just say, listen, there's no questioning our Albertan energy economy. We need to just double down and double down and double down on that and wipe away any, you know, sort of dithering around environmental assessments. That, and I think it's legitimate to question it, that. I think it's fair to question everything. But is it doubling down on this economy or is it simply saying, like, we actually have a responsibility to make the most out of this resource while we have the opportunity to make the most out of it? But I'm not even that their position makes economic sense. It's to the point where it's more of an emotional response than an economic or business case. Absolutely, that what's happening in the political conversation is emotional response. Like, let's not kid ourselves, but that they're not the ones actually controlling the oil market. Like, again, again, the vast majority of the oil market in Canada is controlled by boring people in corporate towers and suits who are doing very straightforward math based on exactly the questions that you're making and allocating their resources accordingly. It's got nothing to do with what Shear says or Kenny says or any of this crap. So, you know, it's absolutely a question we need to happen. And I actually, I just wrote a column from McLean's about how Alberta needs to have this conversation about what what we're going to be doing 50 years from now when oil demand starts to decline. Like we do need to start thinking about what that's going to look like because it's it's going to happen. We can see it happening already. That being said, there's an argument for saying, hey, while we have this resource that we can still sell at enormous profit and make huge amounts of money back into government coffers to do it, let's do it while we can. And we shouldn't be cutting off our nose to spite our face with pipeline restrictions and all this sort of stuff if we can make more money in the short term off of it. 
For sure, but it's it's actually why I actually I think have a lot of respect for Rachel Notley's position, which is yeah, basically totally. you know what screw the dithering and the fighting over future pipeline projects. We're gonna buy more rail cars, get it to market now, and obviously she's still you know thumping for any pipeline that the government wants to put on the table. But um, you know I, I think it's a more realistic approach. You know yeah. Jason Kenney, Andrew Shear seem again it's an emotional, almost spiritual belief in pipelines yeah. and new oil infrastructure as opposed to a, a sensible one. Meanwhile, Trudeau doesn't actually seem to have any sort of long term vision. It's mostly about trying to preserve. Some semblance of you know a national coalition for his for his political yeah, project. It's make, it's make everybody happy. You know, it would be nice to see fucking Jugmeet Singh out here. You know, his hand wringing and utter lack of position on you know what transition needs to look like. I think sucks. I mean, Elizabeth May has been talking about keeping Canadian oil production uh, national and and refining more here. I think it's interesting. I don't think it makes any sense either. But at the very least, there's wait, some but vision But is there. actually doing that. They just announced that they're going to spend a billion dollars on oil upgraders. Now, That's that being saying. said, yeah. when Alberta in the past has attempted to invest taxpayer money in refining, you know, it's a pretty spotty thing. I mean, chances are we're probably losing more money on refining than we're actually gaining in a lot of respects. Yeah. So, like, it's it really is a not necessarily a, a slam dunk situation. And yes, the rail cars, uh, she's announced rail cars. But again, there's an emotional element to that, too, because one of the criticisms from Kenny is that apparently we're spending, you know, twice the market rate on rail cars. So like, yeah. all of this is rooted in emotional reasoning. And I think that a lot of it's rooted in, for especially in Alberta in this fear of like, okay, what the hell is going to happen in 50 years? Like if global demand starts to decline, what the fuck do we do, right? What are our primary industries? And like, how are we going to make these transitions? And instead of having someone coming forward with an actual vision saying, well, this is my idea for how we're going to transition out of this. And this is how we're going to maintain a high degree of prosperity. What we get is a lot of, back talk and blathering about carbon taxes and Ottawa and pipelines. And it's all very shallow. Yeah. I mean, honestly, all I really want is for one leader of the bunch to be very honest with people and say, listen, there's probably not much hope of keeping all of these jobs around for the next 30, 40 years. Let's talk about what comes next for Alberta, because the last thing we want to do is leave all these oil workers out in the cold and make them go back to Newfoundland. Yeah. Nobody wants to go back <laughs> just, to Newfoundland. Just kidding. I mean, just kidding. I just don't want to have to go see all my high school friends when I go back home. That's it for Oppo. We'll be back in two weeks after the government has fallen and Justin Link finally has to eat some goddamn crow. I love crow. Get in touch at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook at OppoCast to let us know what you think. In case you missed it, comments just wrapped up its season on Canadian corruption with an astonishing look at the Canadian company accused of using slavery in 2019. This episode was produced by David Crosby for Canada Land Media. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Theme music by Nathan Burley. I have the last word this week, and that word is truck. <laughs> so this week, you probably heard that Senator David Tkachuk spoke to a bunch of angry truckers and suggested that altogether they roll over the liberal government. He then had to subsequently sort of apologize, where he said he didn't really mean that he was going to literally drive over them, and instead invoked the Minnesota Vikings mascot for some reason. Anyway, just listen to this clip because I can't even do it justice. If you listen in to the entirety of what I said, I was using a figure of speech playing on the United We Roll slogan and was referring to defeating every single liberal in the next election, which would kill the bill. Every trucker understood exactly what I said, but the liberals seem to have a problem understanding what I said. Now, I'm sure when Chuck Berry roll, said, roll over Beethoven, he wasn't talking about rolling over the corpse of Beethoven. <laughs> and I'm sure when the Minnesota Vikings 
called their linemen the purple people eaters. They didn't exactly mean they were eating purple people. And when the orange crush of the Denver Broncos were called the orange crush, no one believed they were really crushing oranges. I think this thing is uh, being uh, promoted by the Liberal Party, and it's totally facetious, and it's a ridiculous uh, statement. Canada is a haven for white-collar fraud where nobody goes to jail. It'd be God forbid that we put our rich people in, in prison. It's nuts because it's a province of Canada trying to figure out ways to circumvent the Canadian criminal code. When we thought they were investigating us and everything's going to blow up, he said... Here's the plan. Uh, you kill yourself and I'll take care of your kids. How can someone who I've never heard of and who's not a public office holder be like the key influencer at the biggest school board in the country? There's no way you're going to threaten me. I mean, I am going to do what is right for my community. I'm Archie Mann, host of Commons, and we've dedicated an entire season to telling you stories about corruption in Canada. And sure, you've heard about Quebec. Seven arrests of former Liberal and Parti Québécois politicians and staffers on 13 criminal charges. But the truth is that in many ways the rest of Canada is just as bad. I've never believed for a second that the problem of corruption stops at the Ontario-Quebec border. Like, that is like, you know, ludicrous. Take Sleepy Khaled in Ontario, where the Mafia went to war with a small-town mayor. Her husband was beaten, she was framed by a federal official for tax evasion, and the provincial government? Well, they seemed to be on the side of the mafia. So then he told me that he had some serious complaints against me, and that they could go away if we make these lands uh, residential. Or how about British Columbia? Today, the BC government's estimating that billions of dollars a year of dirty money was flowing into casinos and real estate, fueling the housing and opiate crises. People bringing in reusable shopping bags filled with bundles of $20 and $50 bills. And no one did a thing about it. Then there's PEI, which embarked on a harebrained scheme to try to circumvent the criminal code and defraud the rest of the country. And now they're stuck in a legal battle with a former CFL player. I played football back in the day. You want to double team, you double team. But you're in for a long day. I'm going to hammer you. I'm going to break your will. To hear it all, subscribe to Commons from Canadaland, wherever you get your podcasts.